Hello and welcome everyone to this very special episode of Biosphere. Every episode, we, a group of Caltech graduate students, invite you to join us in considering the more curious and bewildering aspects of life on Earth. I'm Lev, and I'm joined today by John, Julian, and our very special guest, Sarah McAnalty. Uh, Sarah started Skype a Scientist. She recently defended her PhD thesis on the symbiosis of Hawaiian bobtail squid and bacteria. Uh, and she's right now traveling cross-country in her squidmobile, spreading cephalopod goodness everywhere she goes. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks time. for having me. Um, so today, the theme that I wanted to talk about is assimilation, which is you know the Borg kind of taking others into yourself, <laughs> yeah. into your collective. And the reason why I want to talk about this is that most of the time when we think of organisms, we think of them as kind of self-sufficient or making it on their own, using tools, perhaps even farming, but still their body, their individuality is their own. Uh, today, though, I want to talk about some examples that present a totally different way of life. And before we begin, I want to posit to you our perennial question, which is on a scale of one to five, what is your hot take on assimilation? Well, in terms of, well, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is, is food. And in mm. terms of food, I'm going to say five. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you're talking more in like the emotional level, um, I would say I would give it, I would give it a three because I think that, I think that sometimes like we really need uh, to see how other people carry themselves, handle situations. And that gives us ideas. Uh, like new ideas on ways to improve our own character, improve our own lives. Um, but other times that can be abused and sometimes you can just be a total copycat and mm -hmm. lose any sense of individuality, which can be detrimental. Hmm. Yeah, so from the biological standpoint, I mean, assimilation is kind of the the key historical point in eukaryotic life, right? Because the integration of bacteria in terms of the chloroplasts and the mitochondria allowed for plants and allowed for eukaryotes to be what they are today. So in terms of that, strictly from a biological standpoint, going to give assimilation a big five because otherwise <laughs> we wouldn't wouldn't exist, right? And so uh, in terms of the other aspect of assimilation, it gives me a little bit of pause because when I, I'm thinking all the time about culture of academia and how we can incorporate many different people and not just what uh, the groups that have historically been welcome in science, like uh, white men and then white women, and here we are um, trying to incorporate everybody. And so assimilation also kind of has implications of like erasure of people's um, original individual individuality and, um, and the cultures that they came from. So when it comes to humans, uh, assimilation may not be ideal, but being welcoming and making a academic culture that includes everybody, uh, in a way that accepts them for who they are, where they are, and not just saying, come on in, now be like us. Uh, the word assimilation, I'm gonna give a, a one uh, mm -hmm. in the hopes that we could do better. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I think the Borg are some of the most epic of villains in Star Trek. <laughs> and so in that way, I don't know, as, as a truly evil force, uh, I don't know, a five? <laughs> I mean, the Borg say, you know, we are the Borg, you will be assimilated, resistance is futile, your mm -hmm. biological and technological distinctiveness will be added to our own. And that's just a very daunting and evil kind of 
idea. And so as like the ultimate villain, it's a five, but that also makes it a one, right? Because they're so evil. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's one, one take. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that all of that is super interesting. I, for one, I, I'm enjoying the fact that this is our first diametrically opposed hot take. It's almost always everyone yeah. says three. So I, <laughs> I'm enjoying that. Um, and I'm very excited to talk more about the emotional aspect and the scientific culture aspect of it. Um, but before we do, I'll transition to my hot take, which is, you know, I've often, I guess, wished for perhaps powers that I don't have to be some sort of superhero or whatever else. And one of the things that I've always wished for is to be able to photosynthesize and to just <laughs> sit down in a patch of sunlight and uh, relax and recharge. Uh, and so I think from that wishful perspective uh, of acquiring something new that adds something to who I am, uh, assimilation seems very enticing and I want to give it something again like a five, but it's also dangerous and potentially nefarious and how you go about trying to incorporate things around us. So I feel like I'm in total agreement with you. Hmm. Um, but speaking of this ability to photosynthesize this kind of superpower that animals normally don't have, I want to bring to your guys' attention some sea slugs. These are invertebrates that live in the ocean. They can be quite flamboyant and colorful. And if you ever watch them flapping around and swimming, it seems pretty ridiculous. But they've also caught the attention of people over 140 years ago in 1876, when uh, people noticed that they seem to have these greenish, colorful granules, some of these sea slugs that look like chloroplasts. And this was a kind of curiosity. Now we know that some of these sea slugs, uh, which are called sap-feeding sap sea slugs or sagoglossum sea slugs, actually take up chloroplasts, these photosynthesizing compartments of the algae that they eat, and incorporate them into their own cells through their digestive system. And this is quite remarkable in part because they digest everything else. Hmm. So the algae, the cell walls of the algae, hmm. all of the other components are gone. But these chloroplasts, these plant components that are never found in the animal world, remain and remain for a very long time, for months at hmm. a time. So there's a partial wow. digestion of their food that mm -hmm. leaves the chloroplasts, which are then somehow taken up into the... Okay, wow. Exactly. It's amazing. And this, of course, has led to a lot of excitement. You know, people have talked about solar-powered sea slugs. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, again, animals that have kind of achieved this dream of combining the plant world with, a, with our own. But the, the story is a little bit more complex. Uh, you know, you might ask yourself, well, how can an animal cell support a chloroplast? We don't have mm -hmm. the genes to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. How is it that they derive any benefit from the chloroplasts once they do maintain them? Uh, so what, what are your thoughts? What, what sort of approaches might an animal use in order to accomplish this? Well, I, I would imagine if they can somehow compartmentalize it, maybe, to sort of protect it from 
components of its own cells, maybe some kind of membranes around it. I don't know. I don't know anything about this topic, but that's... Yeah. I admittedly don't know much about this topic either, <laughs> but uh, piggybacking off of that, um, many animal cells can incorporate bacteria into their cells. Um, and so this, of course, happens in infection, but it also happens in infections where um, the bacteria have a way of manipulating the host and so thereby protecting themselves. And, and so it's certainly possible that that's what's happening here, although um, I'd want to do a thorough pub med search before I put that <laughs> one out there. I'm not really sure. Um, I don't know if work on that has been done. But then there's also beneficial associations where bacteria are held in, in these animal tissues like in uh, Wolbachia and uh, insects. This is super common. Um, and so maybe a similar situation is happening here. Hmm. Yeah. So both of those points, I think, are very well taken. These bacteria-derived organelles still need some genes to maintain themselves because there are specific proteins, like, for example, the photosystem that actually does the photosynthesis that perhaps needs to be repaired or regenerated. And one thing that people have tried to figure out is whether the sea slugs somehow carry algal genes uh, mm -hmm. that could support these chloroplasts. And there's some back and forth people arguing about this because people reported that, oh, we can detect algal genes in the DNA of the sea slug. And uh, then people thought, well, is this a case of gene transfer from algae into an animal, which would have been really, really unique. And now that doesn't seem to be quite the case, but it is actually, in my opinion, almost cooler. So the way that people ruled this out is that they took sea slug eggs uh, extracted their DNA and looked for these algal genes and mm -hmm. didn't find them. And this, and the reason why this is important is if the sea slugs actually took and incorporated these genes, you would expect to find them passed from generation to generation. But nonetheless, the algal genes are found in sea slug cells, and it seems like they're actually maintaining DNA fragments that they also take from the algae. Wow. So it's not only the chloroplasts, these organ membrane-bound organelles, but also DNA that's floating around and is transcriptionally active, making these proteins that allow for the sea slugs to maintain the chloroplasts. Is the DNA uptake that they have specific, or is, are they just pulling up random chunks and they do it at a high enough frequency that, you know, eventually you'll get the right chunks to come in? I don't know. Okay. That's a very good question. Okay. I'm not... All this just really makes me want to know what their digestion system. Yeah. Like, how does that work, that there can be such specificity? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And I think that it would be difficult to answer because what people can do is they can say, oh, I know that these are algo genes that are important for chloroplasts. I can look for them in the sea slug. Mm -hmm. And then if they're there, you can find them. But if you don't know what you're looking for, like random genes that the sea slug might be taking up without specificity, you won't know how to find them, really. Mm -hmm. The digestive system is also very interesting. So in the development of these sea slugs, generally what happens is they eat these algae as juveniles, mm -hmm. eat a lot of them and uh, incorporate these chloroplasts. And uh, they have extensive what are called diverticula, these kind of crypts and passages in their guts that take up these chloroplasts and incorporate them into their cells. And then once the sea slug matures, it can go a long time without eating. Mm. And this leads to the question of, 
is it actually photosynthesizing? Is there actually a benefit from this? What people have done is more um, behavioral in a, in a way or more physiological where they uh, take sea slugs and they starve them with light or without light and uh, measure how quickly they lose weight, basically. And what seems to come out of this is that the effect is actually pretty subtle because if you starve them with light, they do more or less as well as if you don't starve them. If you starve them without light, they also do very well, but it seems like they might be then digesting those chloroplasts. Mm -hmm. So it's almost as though the chloroplasts that they take up have a twofold benefit. Mm -hmm. It's a food store that you've just squirreled away and you can digest it at any time. But while you're maintaining it, you might as well use it. And when sunlight's available, you can go longer without food. Mm. That's cool. Really amazing. Yeah. It seems so clever to me that, I don't know, an animal evolved to, to do something like this. Yeah. Are they able to look at things like reproduction rate of the different treatment conditions, whether it would influence their fitness, whether they're in the light or the dark? That could probably be done. I haven't seen it. I, I can't quite say that it hasn't been done, mm -hmm. but I think that would be really cool. Mm -hmm. Also, what are the uh, expected light levels of their habitat? Like how deep are they in the ocean? They're normally in coral reefs, that's okay. my understanding. That, or, those are pretty shallow, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's quite a lot of sunlight because Lots the- Okay. Yeah, the, the corals themselves uh, have photosymbionts that aren't incorporated into the cells of the corals, but live there and photosynthesize and generate mm -hmm. um, food mm. for the corals. Yeah. I was very surprised to learn about this because, you know, I go about my life thinking that animals are animals, plants are plants, and, you know, never the twain shall meet. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, have you, are you familiar at all with the holobiont concept? Um, this is basically saying that when many animals come together and live in symbiosis, they become an organism. So for example, when the squid and the bacteria get together, they're no longer the squid and the bacteria, they're the unit of the two. And that's, that's often common, uh, a, a newer way of thinking about how these communities um, of bacteria in many of these symbioses are kind of thought about. And so we have to kind of break the habit of thinking of these animals in isolation, um, even if they're living together, and even if they're you know isolated or or maintained in a certain part of the animal's body, that they're still really functioning as one. And so, what we kind of have to ask ourselves as scientists going forward is what parts of early biology we need to leave behind to really understand how life exists. And a lot of the times in the past, we've wanted to put things, like you said, in these like little boxes, yeah. and that's just. They're breaking boxes left and right. Every time we make a rule, we find somebody that breaks that rule. Yeah. And so kind of getting comfortable with that uncertainty is something that biologists are getting better at with time. Yeah, I feel like it, it makes sort of sense historically that in the beginning, it would be low-hanging fruit to go out as a biologist and just put everything in a classification, right? And say, you know, these are the plants. They're different from these are the animals. They're different from these are the, you know, bacteria, whatever. But, but it's interesting now how it is being broken, how frequently we find that those classification systems were a little hasty, yeah. right? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's, it's just cool to see how the, the history like, of our 
uh, for lack of a better word, naivete about like how the world works mm -hmm. um, influences this progression over time. Yeah. Do you think that this uh, naive way of doing things was inevitable? Like, you know, say being biologists today mm. and knowing that this was too naive, do you think that we can avoid making the same mistakes in our research and making naive assumptions for our currently lowest hanging fruit? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, my my intuition is no, we can't. Um, we do the best we can, right, at the time. And I guess what I was trying to say before is that the the classifications that were early made was probably the best they could do because everything was so new, right? Like just trying to have any sort of classification system at all was very useful at that time. Um, but, you know, as you accrue more knowledge, it becomes clear that these lines that we draw, that we think maybe some people, like when they first look at these classification th systems, they see, they see those lines between different types of organisms. And they think this is those lines are made by nature, right? But really, they're made by humans uh, and our perception of things. Mm -hmm. I guess that's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think it leads very nicely to talking about our experiences of life as scientists and what we've been assimilated into. <laughs> one thing that I wanted to ask about, Sarah, is you know, one thing that you do is Skype a scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a wonderful way of connecting the general public to scientists or our educational system to scientists. And one thing that I'm very curious about is why you felt that that was the best approach or the most efficient approach or however you would describe it. Yeah, sure. Um, so basically when I was starting Skype a Scientist, this was a time in history when it was right after the 2016 election and um, People, uh, some some folks were really surprised at how badly siloed they were in society. And, and I think we knew to some extent that bubbles existed, but many people quickly realized, oh my God, there's so much worse than we had previously imagined. And so um, one thing that I wanted to accomplish was getting scientists, sure, talking to people, but one thing that we're, we're pretty good at is communicating with what I affectionately refer to as the NPR crowd, um, people <laughs> that would listen to podcasts like this. I mean, we're pretty good at talking about science at a, at a medium high level, um, but not super great at breaking out of our bubbles, partially because we didn't really totally understand the extent to which they existed. And so, um, or at least some of us, many people totally understood, but the vast majority, maybe not. So um, what I wanted to think about was how we could produce a program that could reach people at scale, but also cross do have like a more of a cross section of the population. And so I thought schools would be a good place for that because no matter what part of the political spectrum you are, no matter what part of the socioeconomic uh, kind of ladder you fall into, everybody goes to school for the most part, with the exception of homeschoolers. So I thought that that would be a good place to start. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and also there's kind of like a natural connection between bringing scientists into classrooms that just kind of makes sense to people. So there wouldn't be a lot of pushback against that. And so that's where we started and um, it's gone really well so far. We've, in the last two and a half years, we've reached 17,000 classrooms in 70 countries. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. working out. Yeah. 
I um I think it's really interesting that you pointed out how a lot of scientists are really good at describing their stuff at a medium to high level. Yeah. And and going below that is difficult. I know I don't remember the quote exactly, but you know I think Darwin at one point said that he didn't care at all what the public thought about his work. Mm -hmm. He only cared what his colleagues thought about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of sums up the experience that I've had in in like interacting with scientists and talking with them about what they care about in terms of their own work. And, yeah. And I mean, like, what's your take? I mean, it seems like you've had the opportunity to interact with a lot of scientists who do care about reaching out to, you know, high school students per se or, yeah. or whatever. Um, do you think that that attitude is, is persistent in the scientific community or? I think that the desire to communicate science to a broader population is becoming a lot more of a common thing. Um, but certainly we still have scientists who feel that it's a total waste of time. And so I think as these older, not always older, but this uh, more old school approach to just keep kind of keeping science in the ivory tower and not working extra hard um, or, or making time for this kind of thing, because mm -hmm. Lord knows science, scientists are extremely busy. So what I'm seeing is that these old guard scientists are seeing the benefits of communicating science to the public and the benefits even in their own graduate students' careers and how um, communicating science is really boosting us up, even like just in terms of getting what my work is out to people. Like when more people hear about it, inevitably more scientists hear about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is really helpful. Yeah, what, one thing that I think about in this context is even though there does seem to be a bit of a sea change in the, the culture of science, and you know, I guess I only see it from biology and what biologists are doing, but there still is so much pressure to fit into a certain mold or to have a certain definition of success of who you are as a scientist. And I find that I mean, challenging in a lot of ways because you know, one sort of thing that gets thrown around is, oh, there's the academic path and there, there are alternative careers. <laughs> yeah. uh, which is ridiculous because if anything, the academic path is probably the alternative one. Um, but uh, it, it becomes difficult, I guess, to keep priorities in place when you're experiencing this pressure of your success as a scientist if you sit at your bench and you published this many times and like over the course of your PhD or whatever else. Uh, and it's difficult. I think it's 20 times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. thank you. So that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's hard sometimes to... Uh, remember that there is a world outside that it's wonderful to communicate with and that is fulfilling to communicate with. I also have a, a family that doesn't have any scientists in it and mm -hmm. I've had two distinct experiences with them whenever I talk to them about my science. It's either, it's either uh, I have no idea what you just said or that wasn't totally clear to me, I didn't follow, or they did follow and their minds are blown every single time. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I feel like any scientist would have that experience explaining their their stuff to um, non-scientists because mm -hmm. the things and the tools that are available to us today as scientists, especially molecular biologists, I think for, I mean, I'm biased, but uh, I think the stuff we have available to us are is just amazing, amazing, yeah. amazing feats of, of human accomplishment. But so much of the public doesn't know about that whole world yeah. Um, because it hasn't been communicated well throughout, you know, the past couple of decades. So I have a question. Um, in the the Skype settings, um, 
how do you deal with demographics in different parts of the country, say where a classroom might not be very receptive to even fundamental ideas of biology like evolution? How do you deal with this in talking to students or outreach in these you know, very broad types of settings? That is a hard question, and I wish I had a better answer for you, but um, we do have religious schools that sign up for Skype a scientist, and sometimes we'll have, a scientist will come to me and say, the teacher said that I wasn't allowed to use the word evolution, but I'm an evolutionary ecologist. Yeah. Like, how am I supposed to deal with this? And so um, we, I, I don't currently have a good answer, but there's a group at AAAS called Dozer, and they specifically work with helping scientists communicate science to um religious communities. And so we're building training with them over the next year to help with that. And so while I don't have a solid answer now, uh, we will hmm. in about a year. So okay. hang tight and yeah. go back to skypeascientist.com. We're going to have a scientist, uh, like science communication training for scientists uh, that'll be free and hopefully low time commitment. That sounds amazing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you for putting, <laughs> putting something so wonderful together. Yeah. The other, the other aspect of assimilation that, um, Sarah, you brought up before um, in relation to sort of the demographics of our, of our scientific community, I think that is something that doesn't get talked about enough. It's getting talked about more now. Mm -hmm. um, the num like women are outnumbering men in graduate programs in biology, but still men vastly outnumber women in tenure track positions yeah. uh, in academia. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I don't have any more stats off the top of my head, okay. but um, yeah, it's totally wild. Like even yeah. white women are having a hard time. And then compo compounding upon that, you have the intersections of, of race, um, mm -hmm. gender like expression mm -hmm. and um, ableism. Like it's just, it's a hot mess from start to finish. And so, um, of course, there are some reasons that we kind of always point to as to why women um, don't end up in the tenure track. Some people obviously are like, oh, well, they want to have children. Or, but mm. I don't think that's really the issue because many women that are going into the tenure track have women or have children totally successfully. Yeah. I think that the culture in academia is not particularly pleasant. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I really I don't have good answers for why this is, but I think that the culture needs to change in in many ways. And sure. so I a lot of times I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to to make our world better, um, particularly for women of color, knowing that as a white woman, I'm doing better than a lot of my fellow women, like in terms of the implicit biases, biases that I experience mm -hmm. for the, the just basic um, discrimination that I experience. Um, and so I, for one, am choosing to not go into academia right now. And honestly, I there's a solid chance I, I won't come back um, because I think it's just abusive and unpleasant and I don't want to die young mm -hmm. um, from the stress. I just, I, I don't know if it's worth it. And I can do more good outside of academia than with from, from within. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like how we make PhDs. I, I don't think a lot of the emotionally abusive approaches that we take that are just touted as the way we've always done it. Um, I don't think that they're, they're the best way to make scientists. I don't think that these oral qualifying exams and, and like like little stuff that's just, well, of course we're going to do an oral qualifying exam where we have five old men grilling uh, a 25-year-old woman. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I just, that's, why? Like, why does it have to be that way? Did that make that scientist better? I don't think so. I think that scientists are made from 
experience and mentorship. Yeah. We're horrible at mentorship. Some some mentors are phenomenal, of course. But on the whole, we suck. Mm-hmm. And so learning how to better mentor many pit people and accepting that every um, every individual that you mentor is gonna have gonna need, have different needs is gonna be essential to making academia an acceptable place for for people. Um, I think that a lot of times historically, uh, white men have um, we've always, they've always been there, and so there's also this sort of machismo involved. I think, and this isn't something that I've like read about. This is just like a, a pet theory that I have, mm. um, which is you know I'm not sure is right, but it is a thing that I feel like you. Uh, as a white man, you feel like part, not a white man, just a dude in general, maybe. Mm. Um, there's sort of this like, we got to be uh, go through battle to have to become like a fully functional adult. And I think that maybe that's expected of you. And you're, so you think about it subconsciously, perhaps your whole lives. Like you have to be, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like battle. Pardoned? Yeah. Like, yeah, you go into battle and this has been true for all of European history, at least, you go into battle and then you're a man, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's kind of why we've made it this way, because we're like, oh, well, sure, we're all just sitting around in khakis talking about books, but we still must go through battle to make it through. And it's like, well, no, we we don't. This is, we don't have to do this. Mm -hmm. Why are we putting ourselves through this? And so I just wonder about that. And I think that it's just, it's stupid and awful and doesn't need to be this way. But that's like such a drop in the bucket as to why women have, have problems um, in academia, but that's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Do you feel like when it comes to acting toward change in academia, that there is a way to try to address everything holistically or that there have to be a set of priorities as a community uh, that we try to follow systematically in order, in order to make things better? That's a great question. I don't know. Um, sometimes I feel like we just have to burn the whole thing to the ground and start over. <laughs> but of course, that's never going to happen. Um, so I think what the way I've approached it in my own um, communities is I just try to listen to everybody, try to figure out what co- some common issues everybody is experiencing are. Maybe it's a person who's known to be an abuser. Maybe it's um, the process of going from a rotation student to PhD candidate to PhD. And then talk to whoever's in power at my university. Maybe it's my PI in the lab. I mean, thankfully I went, I went, uh, I was in a lab that was just really wonderful, but maybe at the department level, you have some kind of issue. Um, and so I'll talk to the department head and I'll be like, Hey, I can't fix academia as a graduate student or as a assistant research professor, but I can fix the problems that exist at, in my department here. From the level of power where I am, I have enough power to complain and get people's ears um, that are in my local sphere. And I can talk about it on Twitter and I can hopefully influence the opinions of people that are in power at other universities. But it's not as though we have an overall governing body, which makes it really hard to enact change among all of us. But for example, look at the the progress we've made on the GRE. Like the GRE, um, First of all, has your your score on GRE has nothing to do with how good you are as a graduate student, but here we are still using it as a metric for getting in. And so many schools have stopped taking it. Great. Mm-hmm. This is helpful for students who didn't have the money to take the GRE. Um, it's one less boundary, one boundary that we're taking away from getting into grad school, which is great. But talking about it on Twitter has made other departments be like, you know, 
we should really do that, shouldn't we? And then maybe it's two years down the line until they're like, okay, I'm officially brave enough to talk about this at my department meeting. Mm -hmm. And then two more years of arguing about it at department faculty meeting. And then finally, we get rid of it. And that's what happened at UConn. Maybe Mm -hmm. not quite at that time scale, but um, there was a lot of bickering at the faculty meeting. And then eventually, we lost it. Mm -hmm. And we're on board now. And so, Mm -hmm. thank God. And so a lot, we need people who are passionate about making things better everywhere, kind of battling in their own um, small units Mm -hmm. to to make change. And so that's also, I think, true of science communication, which is why I'm I'm always trying to think about how we can get everybody kind of working together to do something manageable. Mm -hmm. Because when you just are an individual looking at these huge systemic problems, either in society or in your um, department or whatever, it can seem totally insurmountable. It can seem like, well, what what the hell can I do yeah, to fix so that? Overwhelming. So overwhelming. I'm just I'm just some schmuck. How am I supposed to fix that? And so when you're like, okay, well, let's try to not panic. Let's think, <laughs> what can I fix? What small incremental thing can I do to fix this problem? And if we all do it, it's gonna get better. Mm-hmm. It just totally. is. Totally. Yeah. But that, that and I think that that does take some level of individual bravery. It does. Because you have to put your neck out there in your department. Like let's say you're a new. Sure. Uh, a new um, assistant professor, yeah. like putting bringing something like that up is scary. Oh yeah, especially when your whole career is like literally on the line if if it doesn't go well, right? Right. Um, right. But I don't know. I sort of feel like there. I, I feel hopeful because of people in our generation who mm-hmm. are thinking about this. Yeah. And who I think are going to do exactly everything you just laid out. Uh, yeah. And make all those changes. Um, but it will take time. But I yeah. I mean. It's, just totally gotta agree do with it. everything just you gotta said. be yeah. brave. Yeah. The second you get tenure, start whining. If you can complain before that, that's ideal. Yeah, we have one um, faculty member in our department who is pre-tenure, and she is just such a strong supporter of women in science, people of color in science. She's just con- she was one of the ones who really fought for the GRE getting taken away. Mm. Um, and so I respect her bravery so much. Um, and now she's going to another, uh, institution cause she honestly got a better offer. So mm. she's going there, but you know, her career's not ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that is scary, but particularly basically at the end of the, the end of the day, if you have power and you're not using it, you're the problem. It's time to transition to our episode recaps, but before we do, I want to highlight some research that came out after we recorded this episode with Sarah. On March 3rd, the clearest analysis that I have ever seen of career outcomes in science came out. The authors tracked the careers of over 1.5 million scientists in many countries and fields of study whose publishing careers ended between 1955 and 2010. This report has definite limitations. For example, they account only for men and women, do not consider race, and place an implicit value on academic careers that not everyone may share. Nonetheless, the authors report several very clear results. Men and women publish at the same annual rate and have the same overall impact for their individual bodies of work, which I find very heartening. However, at every stage of their careers, women are significantly more likely than men to leave. The main difference between men and women in academic science is their publishing career length. This is not just a concern for young scientists. The power of this paper is in demonstrating the kind of data we are now able to gather 
and in systematically directing our attention to the main point of separation between men's and women's academic careers. As we work to ensure that academia is a welcoming place for everyone, we have to keep these results in mind. A link to this report is in our show notes. Now, for the recap. Every episode we give ourselves 10 minutes, don't worry, that part is cut out, to come up with poems or Upgore Fives that summarize our discussion. Upgore Fives restrict us to the 1,000 most common words in the English language. These recaps are an opportunity for us to celebrate the cool and important things that we talked about, and I hope that you enjoy them as much as we did. Anyone want to go first? I'll go first. All right, I did a poem. Assimilation can be good or bad, depends on how you use it. For slugs and algae, it seems quite rad, though the algae may not approve it. But perhaps we shouldn't seek approval when working for inclusion to ensure that there's complete removal of failed customs in conclusion. All right, so I try to do the closest thing I can get to a poem, but not as poemy as what that just was. Um, in Up Goer 5. So here we go. Um, bring people into your question family. Accept them as they are. Weird color-changing animals do this with tiny living things. Flying animals do this in their own bodies. In our question family, we must be better. Be strong. Voice our problems. Fix from within. Use your power. That's so good. I love the term question family. Yeah, that's I was going to say the same thing. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's very, that's very powerful. (laughs) Okay, I I have a very simple poem. An algal cell in a sea slug cell gives the creature light as well and makes it strong enough to sing so far along a special thing. We academics, truth to tell, do many things we don't do well, but there is hope in our own power that in good time, progress will flower. Very nice. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) At once, its gelatinous form consumed soft green plant, and with discernment splits with dexterous gut. As if with tender consideration, it takes small round parts as the choicest fruits of harvest. At the same time, supine in the brilliance of Helios, it invites Bacchus for unusual rites, for the flaming chariot from above provides a generous feast inside. Photosynthesize. Beautiful. Oh my god. Every time my heart just stops. Oh my god, he's got away with words. Uh, All right. Well, with that, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone tuning in and joining us for this episode. And of course, to Sarah for basically driving across country to be here. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Uh, Yeah, you can find her on Twitter, Sarah MacAttack, and also skypascientist.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at biospherepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at lmt underscore spoon. If you are enjoying what you are hearing, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, leave a review, and share this episode with your friends. You can find a convenient text editor for your own Upgoer Fives at splasho.com slash Upgoer Five, that's with the digit five, and send us your own recaps to this episode. We would really love to read them. 
Huge thanks to Caltech Letters for hosting us. You can find more great science at caltechletters.org. And finally, if you gaze into an aquarium and find it gazing back into you, <laughs> do let us know. We might just talk about it. <laughs>